show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me singing this song. Show me the way to go home. Hi, this is Thinking Drinking, a podcast about drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined in the virtual pub by my drinking buddy, Ilary. What are you drinking and thinking about today? Hello, I am drinking a cocktail. Fancy, huh? Mm-hmm. And I made it myself. It's not a tin job. Oh. <laughs> tin job sounds horrible. <laughs> Good. What, it, what kind of cocktail is it? Uh, well, I'll tell you what the ingredients, and you can guess the name. So, there are two slices of chili in there, de-seeded and chopped up, some mezcal, mm-hmm. some cointreau, some lemon juice, a dash of bitters, and a little bit of syrup. Okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess it's called hot citrusy Mexican bish. Okay, that's why you don't work in marketing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is called the fire and brimstone. Yay! And that just so Mm. happens to be the title of this episode. I say this episode, it's actually the title of this and next episode, because for the spooky season, for Halloween and for Bonfire Night, we're doing you a two-parter titled Fire and Brimstone! You lucky things! Yep. So, well, I'm drinking, before I get on to more of that title, a Duval. The, uh, the classic Belgian pale ale, which is quite strong and has a big foamy head. Um, I'll tell you why I'm drinking that later in the episode. Ooh. Mm-hmm. She's mysterious. Teasers. So fire and brimstone, as a phrase, refers to God's wrath, which is found in both the Hebrew Bible and the Christian New Testament in the Bible. It appears in reference to the fate, usually, of the unfaithful. So brimstone is this old term that is roughly synonymous with sulphur. It evokes that acrid odour of sulphur dioxide that is given off by lightning strikes. So if you happen to be near lightning when it strikes, you can smell this kind of sulphurous gas. Lightning was traditionally understood to be divine punishment by a lot of ancient religions, actually, not just the um, Abrahamic ones, and the association of sulphur with divine retribution is quite common throughout the Bible. So question for you, Larry. Um, have you ever felt divine retribution? I've not, but I've definitely been around some sulphuric smells. Yes, good. It's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a retribution and a damning of some kind. <laughs> <laughs> So the first thing that sulphur made me think of after what you just mentioned was um, Burtonization as a term. Uh, Burtonization is the act of adding sulphate, often in the form of gypsum, to the water used for the brewing of beer. And it brings out the flavour of the hops. And the name comes from the town of Burton-upon-Trent. We have mentioned this briefly before, I think in the yeast episode maybe. So pale ale, <laughs> what? Just have a little flashback to the yeast episode then. 
you're having yeasty flashbacks. Okay. <laughs> uh, pale ale was already being brewed in London when in 1822 the method had been copied by the Burton-upon-Trent brewer Samuel Allsop who got a more hoppy tasting version he found of the beer because of the sulfate-rich local water. Um, He didn't necessarily know that was the reason though. So it proved really popular. By 1888 there were then 31 breweries in the town of Burton-upon-Trent alone um, supplying demand for Burton Ale. So the characteristic whiff of sulphur indicates the presence of sulphate ions, and that became known as the Burton Snatch. <laughs> any, any comments you want to make on that? Just want to say, ladies of Burton, wash your snatch. Later, the chemist C.W. Vincent analysed the waters of Burton, and it was they that identified the calcium sulphate content as being responsible for accenting the hop bitterness in Burton Ale. So they only found out later exactly what it was. Um, Burtonization is used when a brewer wants to accent the hops in a pale beer, such as a pale ale or a pilsner. It's not used for dark beers like stout. Um, However, excessive dosage must be avoided to prevent undesirable consequences, which can include a laxative effect. Nobody wants that. <laughs> so it was when they figured out the chemistry of it later, obviously, that um, breweries started to be able to artificially make their water like the water of Burton upon Trent. And that's what we see now. In fact, we might see it in the likes of Hell's beer. Hell's H E L L E S, or simply H E L, is a traditional German pale lager um, which is produced chiefly in southern Germany particularly around Munich, that's what it's most known for. Uh, the German word hell here uh, is not is not meaning the damnation that we are theming this uh, episode on brimstone around. It's translated as bright or light or pale. So hell's style beer, typically they're, they're full-bodied, they're a bit sweet, they're light-coloured, they have low bitterness, and it's usually clear due to filtration prior to bottling, although some do it without the um, filtration. Munich style Hells is this yellowish beer brewed using cool fermentation and lager yeast and Hells you can tell it apart from Pilsner because it's slightly less hoppy. So it's one of those lagers slightly less hoppy than you would get with a Pilsner but still like a good taste not like the big commercial lagers. Until the 1960s Hells were widely available kind of across Germany, anywhere German-speaking. But it became slowly replaced after the 60s by the Pilsner-style beers. Um, And that was driven as well by a change in preference from draft beers over to bottled beers. So in regions outside of southern Germany, Hells is starting to regain popularity again after being almost wiped out by the popularity of Pilsner. You particularly find it, I think, in the cooler areas in the cities like Berlin, where um, the image of Hells has become trendy again, I think probably because of its scarcity more than anything else. Many of the Hells uh, breweries, ironically, were originally monasteries, which you can still hear in the name of some of the popular Hells you can buy. So, for example, Spaten Franciscana, which means Spade Franciscans for the Franciscan monks, Augustina Brau, which is the Augustinian's brew, and even Lowenbrau, which means lion brew, but comes from the story of Daniel in the lion's den. 
So a lot of the hells actually have kind of ironic religious uh, names and backgrounds. I almost bought uh, Camden Hells to drink today instead of mm-hmm. Duval, but when I went to the shop, I saw Duval and I thought, no, that's the one. But I thought I'd mention that Camden Hells, they, they spell it H-E-L-L-S. They're actually a hybrid of Hells and Pilsner. They say they're halfway in between. I find Hells and Pilsner to be quite closely related anyway, so I'm not sure exactly what makes it a hybrid. Um, but their main thing when you go on their site is that they don't pasteurize. So I think the space that they're in is like, we're kind of a bit like your commercial lager, but whereas they would pasteurize their beer, we definitely don't. And in fact, if you go on their website, they have a little kitsch game you can play. <laughs> like a sort of 8-bit thing which has precisely one interaction in it um, called Pasta Geddon, <laughs> which is them making a big deal about the fact they don't pasteurize. You choose a character and they're like, do you want to pasteurize the beer or not? And obviously you have to say no. And that's the game. <laughs> Nevertheless, made me laugh. Um, also, Camden Hells have just done a collaboration with, or well, Camden Brewery has just done a collaboration with Marmites, uh, a Marmite mm. ale, which I guess is some idea, people's idea of hell. But I thought I'd say it because it links us right back to Burton and Burtonization, adding in that Marmite, which is where it comes from. Uh, can I talk now? Um, you can. Can I? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'd like to talk about the Devil's Punch Bowl. Ooh, I bet it's fancy. Have you ever been? Have I ever been? It's a place. Oh, see, now I thought it was quite common knowledge, but then it's only because I've I've not been been there, but I've passed it a number of times and seen the big tourist brand signs. Right. So it is a place. Okay. A visitor attraction. So it's in Surrey, uh, just east of Hindhead in the English countryside. Um, So it's owned by the National Trust. It's basically a massive piece of land. It's 697 acres to be precise. Um, And it's a natural amphitheatre. There's lots and lots of stories in the area about why it's there, how it was formed. Um, but currently, yeah, it's owned and maintained by the National Trust. Funnily enough, it was actually one of their earliest acquisitions. Um, so the co-founder of the National Trust, Sir Robert Hunter, he lived nearby in Hazelmere, and he helped them buy the Devil's Punch Bowl. Um, so I was on a holiday recently with my friends, Sally, Jenny and Zoe, and we were just outside Hazelmere, and I kept seeing the signs for the Devil's Punch Bowl, but never got the chance to go. Um, So a little bit about the land and the name. So the highest point of the rim is Gibbet Hill. It is 892 feet above sea level, um, gives fantastic panoramic views and on a clear day you can actually see the skyline of London which is 38 miles away. the name, the Devil's Punch Bowl, that dates from at least 1678, according to old maps. It was previously, uh, before 1768, uh, marked as Ye Bottom on a map. <laughs> <laughs> so the map was dated, uh, yes, yeah, 1675, it was known as Ye Bottom. Um, the northern end of the bowl 
is known as Hycombe Bottom, and that exists in different variants as well. Hackham Bottom, Hatcham Bottom, and Hackham Bottom. So many a bottoms to be had in the bowl. <laughs> I'm laughing at ye bottom um, because <laughs> do you remember I've taught you this before that it's not actually pronounced ye. Do you yay. remember? Is it ye? No, it's the. The yeah, the do bottom. You re- do you remember this? <laughs> now I remember. <laughs> the the Y the is like the thorn character from the from Norse runes. So yeah. It's actually the. If it was ye bottom, you'd be saying your bottom rather than the bottom. But I was saying your bottom. I felt like you were. Your bottom <laughs> is 697 acres. You, a- <laughs> you actually can see the London skyline from my bottom. <laughs> Often. <laughs> <sighs> Moving on. The soil in this part of Surrey has two layers, an upper layer of sandstone and a clay beneath. Uh, they believe that that deep depression, which forms the bowl... Um, is to be the result of erosion caused by spring water underneath the sandstone. But who cares about that? Let's read about the local legends and stories. I feel like you care about it. You love things like spring water geology. (laughs) Um, My brother would be absolutely delighting at this information. I don't care so much about sandstone. you, You told us all about this in the water episode, I remember. (laughs) <laughs> wells and stuff okay, and springs fine. I enjoyed reading about the strata of Surrey fine <laughs> tell me the stories um, stories so one of them is that the devil became so irritated by all of the churches being built in Sussex during the middle ages that he decided to dig a channel from the English channel through the South Downs and flood the area So when he started digging, he threw up huge lumps of earth, each of which became local landmarks in the area. So you've got the Chanctonbury Ring, the Sisbury Ring, and Mount Caban is apparently some of the creations of the Devil's Lumps of Earth. Um, He got as far as the village of Ponyings, or Poynings, I'm not sure of the pronunciation, but it's an area known as the Devil's Dyke. Um, so when he got as far as the Devil's Dyke, he was disturbed by a cock crowing. There's another version of this story that claims that it was the prayers of St. Dunstan that made all the local cocks crow earlier than usual. But anyway, when he heard that, he assumed dawn was about to break and he leapt into Surrey, creating the Devil's Bunch Bowl when he landed. I like it. That's a, that's a mighty crater. Also, I totally yes. held off on making jokes about cocks etc because we've only just had the Chianti episode and we did it to death in that I mean you had every chance to laugh at the uh, the rim of the bowl I did I kept that one inside also the dykes <laughs> I remember I remember my sister telling me when she first moved to Lincolnshire that the first thing people warned her about they said oh you've got to look out for the dykes the dykes are quite dangerous in Lincoln and she was like oh Okay. I mean, I expected it to be intolerant, but sure. Um, She didn't at that point realise that what they meant is when you're driving along the long country lanes, you've got to be careful because cars go off the road into the ditches. I think I prefer the former, to be honest. Yeah. (laughs) Um, 
that's the kind of the main and most popular story of the devil's punch bowl but there is another one um and that story goes that in his spare time the devil would hurl lumps of earth at thor just to annoy him uh the hollow out of which he scooped the earth became the punch bowl um and fun fact the local village of thursley means thor's place so I'd imagine everyone in Thursley firmly believes that story over t'other one. I like a good mix-up of culture myths, whereby you have mm-hmm. a universe where both the devil and Thor exist. It kind of shows, it shows that historic integration of, uh, you know, the, the Vikings and the, the Danes and the Saxons and all that sort of stuff, kind of mm-hmm. merging into one society whereby that can exist. I think that's really cool. Um, but yeah, the the Devil's Punch Bowl now has a protected status um, because it's one very beautiful, uh, but there's a lot of wildlife there as well. Um, there's a natural nature reserve. There's heathland, streams, woodland, lots of happy little animals. Um, so it's been listed as a site of special scientific interest. And that status has more recently helped it uh, from redevelopment of the A3 and all sorts of other nasty things that we humans like to do with the lovely land. So long live the Devil's Punch Bowl. Nice. I hope they have like special events there that does surf punch. I did, um, I did actually go into the uh, National Trust website just to see like what's on that's where i found out that it was their earliest acquisition etc etc um but yeah i feel like they definitely need um some more events i thought like now is the perfect time halloween bonfire night great time to be doing stuff for the devil's punch bowl but now just the usual national trust stuff afternoon tea i think you should go and do some marketing for them could call it piss up in a punch bowl Exactly. Come and get shit faced in the Devil's Punch Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, do you remember? And I always hesitate to start a sentence that way. Twenty first now. <laughs> September. Uh, do you remember in the Dionysus episode that I mentioned the Hellfire Club, and I said the legacy of all these sort of Dionysiac you know, parties and orgies and stuff was could still be seen in the Hellfire Club of 18th century Britain, and I would talk about that at a later episode. Do you remember that? I mean, I remember the orgies. Sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, this is that episode. I'm going to tell you about the Hellfire Club. Um, so we have to begin with Lord Wharton, which is where these things generally um, seem to come from. He was a prominent politician who was said to have two separate lives, one as a man of letters and second as a a drunkard, a rioter, an infidel and a rake, to quote. Um, The members of Wharton's club, private club, are largely unknown, but we can assume it was his close friends, (laughs) who he always hung around with. Um, At the time of the early 18th century, there were lots of London gentlemen's clubs, and there were meeting places for every interest. So, you know, you have poetry and philosophy and politics and all sorts of things. Wharton's Hellfire Club was, we think, a satirical gentleman's club. 
So it was there to ridicule religion. Um, and there was a, a quite a current trend at the time in England of blasphemy. Everyone found blasphemy very funny. We're at the dawn of the Enlightenment, so I think it's partly inspired by that. Um, so the club was like more of a joke, really. It was meant to shock the outside world uh, more than be a serious attack on religion or morality. It was satirising and parodying. The supposed president of this club was the devil. <laughs> Although the members themselves did not apparently worship demons or the devil like that in any serious way, but they did call themselves devils as members. Um, Wharton's club actually admitted men and women as equals, which other clubs didn't do at the time. Um, the club met on Sundays at a number of different locations around London. The Greyhound Tavern was one of the most well-known meeting places used regularly, but because women weren't actually allowed to be seen in taverns a lot of the time they would also have meetings at members houses or at Wharton's own riding club um so yeah it was this thing that was meant to sort of satirize all those establishments um another popular hangout of theirs this is a bit of a segue was the georgian vulture uh they moved there in the 1730s it still exists it's near bank uh, in London. Alas, it is now a Sam Smith's pub. But I want to tell you a little bit about the history because it's quite fun. Um, so it goes back quite a few centuries. Originally, it was the London lodging of a guy called Earl Ferrers. And in 1175, his brother was slain there in the night. Ooh, Halloween evil doings. Uh, back then, it was simply called the George. And it was described uh, by London historian as a common hostelry for travellers. So more of a hostelry than a pub as we would know it at that time. Um, it was reduced to a smouldering wreck during the Great Fire of 1666. When it was rebuilt, the landlord there agreed to lease part of it to a local wine merchant who'd lost his own shop um, during the fire. So you actually, kind of after the fire, see this linking up of some of the surviving kind of hostelries and wine bars, for example. Um... The thing that was more controversial <laughs> about this reincarnation of the George was that the sign um, above above the uh, now tavern was a live vulture, which was <laughs> tethered above the entrance to the George, and its squawking and flapping alarmed the cus customers and leaseholders um, quite a lot. But they absorbed the name, the vulture, so it became the George and Vulture. They did eventually release release the vulture after years of captivity they just released it into the night sky <laughs> um poor vulture so it, it had a reputation for being a haunt for lots of poets and literary men um and although there isn't a specific record to substantiate it that um chaucer used the house we know his father um who was himself like a licensed victualler a, a wine merchant um, knew it very well so probably a hangout of chaucer uh, a guy called Thomas de Quincey recorded a story concerning an unnamed lord who tied a man to a spit, roasting him, presumably, here at the Georgian Vulture. I don't believe he actually roasted him, but they probably did tie someone to a spit. Uh, Hogarth, who pops up um, quite often in this podcast for his paintings, and we will do a proper episode on one day. Um, his painting, Charity in the Cellar, uh, was painted around 1739, and it's presumed that's a painting of that same club but it's not completely substantiated uh, the yard for this tavern was used uh, like a lot of the other vineyards uh, for, by traveling companies of players 
to uh, performing. I mentioned that in our Shakespeare episode as well. So they would perform comedies and mystery plays and all that sort of stuff. Probably the most well-known um, association with this is... Can you guess who I'm going to say? Which literary figure? Katie Price. <laughs> oh, so close. But it's the one we've said more than any others, Dickens. Um, <laughs> so Dickens drank here and in the Pickwick papers, uh, his novel Mr Pickwick made the tavern his London residence until at the end of his adventures he retires to Dulwich. So it was a favourite drinking place of his and the Pickwick Society still meets there. Anyway, that was a little um, sojourn into the Georgian vulture, back to the Hellfire Club. Um, <laughs> so according to at least one source, their activities included mock religious ceremonies. Uh, members of the club supposedly came to meetings dressed as characters from the Bible, and they ate meals containing dishes like Holy Ghost Pie, Breast of Venus, Devil's Loin, and they would be drinking Hellfire Punch. And I have a recipe for Hellfire Punch, should we want to make it. Um, you pour the rum, a Sailor Jerry rum, 50 mils, and ginger beer, 50 mils, and Tabasco into a highball glass over ice. And then you top it up with Pilsner and garnish with lime. So it's rum, ginger beer, Tabasco and beer. That sounds delish. I thought you'd like that. That sounded right mm-hmm. up your street. You're into some Hellfire mm-hmm. Punch. So whereas Wharton was probably mostly, you know, satirical, it was a bit more light-hearted... There's another guy a little bit later on who sets up another Hellfire Club called Francis Dashwood. And he's the most infamous associated with uh, Hellfire activities. So this guy inherited his father's vast fortune and estate in Buckinghamshire when he was 15. Never a good start. (laughs) He, He later became Chancellor of the Exchequer and was known to have delivered his parliamentary speech while drunk. Um, And he also visited St. Petersburg to meet with Russian nobles. And for a prank, he dressed up as their mortal enemy, the King of Sweden. (laughs) (laughs) I figured you'd like this guy as well. Um, So the records indicate that the members performed obscene parodies of religious rites, uh, according to one source. Um, Horace Walpole, in fact, writes that the members' practice was religiously, rigorously pagan. Bacchus and Venus were the deities to whom they almost publicly sacrificed, and the nymphs and the hogsheads that were laid in against the festivals of this new church sufficiently informed the neighbourhood of the complexion of those hermits. Um, So there you go. That's what I mean by it was the evolution of the kind of secret bacchanalia clubs. They're starting to go back to Bacchus and Venus and all those old gods and try to embrace some of that ribaldry and sexuality. Um, entry to this club required you to have done the grand tour, to, uh, which is to go from London to Italy, you know, through Europe. It was just a thing you were expected to do as you came of age. So you had to do the grand tour. You also had to be drunk. <laughs> those, were the, those were the two requirements. Um, that said, they, they did raise money for um, some quite good causes. So archaeological expeditions, building schemes, operas, and to create a public academy. I say good causes. I mean, they were all quite highbrow. Their idea was that they were trying to, you know, push education and good taste on everyone as opposed to supporting the poor. Um, before it generally became known as the Hellfire Club, it went through various religious-sounding names, like the Order of the Friars of St. Francis of Wickham and the Monks of Medmenham. 
So when Dashwood rented the Medmanham Abbey um, to to like you know have their gatherings and all their debacles, uh, he rented it, but then eventually bought it and rebuilt it as a Gothic style abbey, uh, which was a very fashionable kind of architectural style at the time. You can still visit all these experiences. Uh, including the West Wickham Caves, in which the friars, as they called themselves, no longer devils, they wanted to be religious sorts, even though they are much more debauched than the earlier lot. Um, they uh, they met at this tourist site that's now known as the Hellfire Caves that you can go and visit and explore. Reports from those meetings were that they were mostly used for orgies. Um, <laughs> and another Hogarth reference, you can look at Hogarth's painting, Orgy. Um, to get an idea of what might have gone on, if you're not familiar yourself. Um, <laughs> Dashwood's Garden at West Wickham contains lots of uh, statues and shrines to different gods like uh, Daphne and Flora and Priapus. Are you familiar with that one? No. Uh, Priapus' is erection. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and Venus and Dionysus, as previously mentioned. Uh, I've got a good infamous story from 1763 that I think you're going to enjoy. Ooh. Yes. Uh, the governor of Bengal brought along his beloved baboon to the Abbey, to one of the Hellfire meetings in the Abbey. Uh, a journalist and MP for Aylesbury, John Wilkes, thought it would be funny to dress the baboon up as the devil and hide it in a box. He later unleashed it upon the first lord of the admiralty, Lord Sandwich. Uh, it leapt on his back and he cried out, Spare me, gracious devil! Thou knows I was only fooling! I am not half as wicked as I pretend! And Lord Sandwich ran off into the night. Um, lord Sandwich, and yes, he is the one for whom the sandwich is named, um, did eventually <laughs> return, but the baboon was never seen again. <laughs> Bloody hell. Think about that every time you have a sandwich. Uh, that baboon in a box. <laughs> mm -hmm. Dressed as the devil. So the... Uh, <laughs> I like... You know what a baboon's bum like looks like? I like to feel like they did it the wrong way around. Like they put the horns on the backside. <laughs> kind of looks more like a kebab than a sandwich. <laughs> oh, I'm now moving on from that. So the downfall of Dashwood's club was a bit more drawn out and complicated. So... In 1762, the Earl of Bute appointed Dashwood as his Chancellor of the Exchequer. As I said, he performed many of his duties while drunk. Um, despite Dashwood being completely incapable uh, of doing this, he couldn't. The, the quote was, he couldn't understand a bar bill of five figures. Um, the next year, 1763, the Cider Bill comes about. It was a proposed measure by Lord Bute's British government to put a tax on the production of cider so at this time, Britain's national debt had reached unprecedented levels during um, during that time, um, largely because of the country's involvement in the Seven Years' War, which was pretty devastating. Um, Lord Bute proposed a tax then of four shillings, which would be levied on every hogshead of cider that was made. This did not go down well, uh, particularly in the West Country. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? The West Country had quite a lot of elected MPs and riots broke out. There was widespread outrage against the bill. Um, and that dispute added to Butte's growing unpopularity. And in the mid-1763, he stepped down as Prime Minister and Dashwood also resigned. 
This riot, because of the Cider Bill, was actually one of the first really big revolts in British politics, in modern British politics. It's thought to have changed the tide on how it was how um, control over the laws was perceived because they'd seen riots like that in other countries but not really in this one yet so it was cider that done them in <laughs> i think a lot of people would agree or mm. at least relate to that <laughs> absolutely and that's the hellfire club for you i mean there, there are there's loads more if you really want to go into it like go and research more stories about the hellfire club because it's pretty wild but um those are your highlights I can see you as part of the Hellfire Club, if I'm honest. Oh, absolutely. I would I would absolutely yeah. go to a meeting, for sure. <laughs> Should I add it to the list of things? Yeah, add it to the list. I actually <laughs> would like to go and see the Hellfire Caves and go to um, Wickham and explore all that. Put that on the list. I'd like to drink the punch. Yeah, let's do mm-hmm. it. <laughs> I would like to tell you a little story about a lady called Lilith Starr. Mm-hmm. She's the head of the Seattle chapter of the Satanic Temple. She sounds like an absolute hoot. Uh, so she found Satan uh, when she was trying to beat her nitrous addiction. Um, so she tells us in great depth, she's got two books actually. One of them is called The Happy Satanist and it covers a lot of her story. Um, and she just basically explains how when a lot of people go to kind of Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, there's a lot of these 12-step programs and often mm. they ask you to find a higher power to help you, usually God, which, as you can imagine, wasn't her thing. Um, so she found that when she started worshipping Satan and going through these programs, instead of looking for this higher power, she found herself leaning towards the Satanism beliefs, which was encouraging self-will and individuality. Um, so when she started kind of dabbling, I'll say, in Satanism, she managed to um, kick the nitrous habit. But unfortunately, she replaced that with meth. <laughs> right. Um, it's, not a, it's not a great which, upgrade, is it? Bit of an issue. Um, but she said... Um, her life kind of fell apart then because she was doing a meth. She kind of, her and her husband had issues. It was all going a bit wobbly. So she got everything back on track and she picked up the satanic Bible and she said that's when things really, really changed. Um, she, she did add a caveat that the parts that advocate violence aren't her thing. Um, but she just felt like she really connected with the concept of, and I quote, you're worth taking care of and you should have a passion for yourself and you're the only one with the power to do anything in your life. She said that made a lot of sense to her and she took it as her banner and she ran with it. Uh, and so she obviously now is the head of the chapter in Seattle. She is proudly saying that she does Satan's work. Uh, she's living full time with her husband and as she calls him, my husband and full-time slave boy, um, still in Seattle. I had a little uh, browse on her website. She's read another book, which is about how to be a Satanist with compassion. Um, and more recently on Twitter, she has been... Let me just check the date. 30th of uh, September, that's all right. 30th of September is... National Blasphemy Rights Day in America. Mm. 
So she is doing Satan's work over on Twitter, if you want to follow her, Lilith Star. Uh, for your blasphemy rights, she's also um, fighting the Christians outside the abortion clinics who are um, obviously up in arms about the recent legalizations of abortion. So Lilith Star is very much hashtag abortion is healthcare. Um, yeah, that's her basically. She kicked the habit by finding the devil. Yeah, it's a really important point because I, I so I watched a, a a good documentary about the Church of Satan not long ago, a few months ago. I think it was called Hail Satan or something like that. Um, that they were essentially set up as a group of you might more closely associate them with humanists or atheists who want to take religion out of the political system because uh, mm-hmm. it obviously doesn't belong there. Um, and the the AA example is really pertinent because um, it's not like you necessarily have a choice. Um, so sometimes if people have committed offences that relate to alcohol and narcotic consumption, part of their sentencing or part of their like release from um, probation will be to complete AA, complete a course. And if AA mm-hmm. asks you, say, you know, part of this is that you have to surrender to a higher power, what's essentially happening is that the law is telling you, you have to believe in God in order mm-hmm. for us to, like, you know, uh, get you out of that that kind of period of probation. So um, it it is kind of an important point to make around that, I think. And the Blasphemy Day as well can sound silly to people who think that we have full rights to be blasphemous, but there are so many countries where it, you will get killed for blasphemy there are so many cases that you can mm-hmm. you can look up right now um, amongst more religious countries where the perception of blasphemy will um, will have you kind of quote legally murdered so uh Gosh. embrace it learn more about what they actually do as the church of satan it's not just a joke they've got some really good political stuff as well it's funny because i've read quite a lot of like interviews with her been looking at in social media and if you kind of like take out the whole satan side of things it a lot of it is like makes sense <laughs> a lot of the stuff <laughs> that they're fighting for and against it's like yeah i get it well part of the part of the reason for using it as an attack strategy is because you can't claim atheism or humanism as such as a religion in america like here mm-hmm. we, we we take it as belief so even non-belief is a belief and they kind of have equal standing but in America, what they've done is they've said, well, Satanism is a religion, and so you have to hold it in the same regard as all other religions. And that's the way they've managed to get sort of, you know, non-religious views into it, as it were. Mm-hmm. We're talking about drinks. Um, we can. I would like to talk about a game first. Oh, yes. Um, a game that <laughs> Lilith would probably be outraged by. <laughs> in my <laughs> I think, yeah, you've played it. I think it was another one of those things where I said to you, oh, look at this game. And you were like, dude, I've already told you about this months ago, which (laughs) happens a lot. Um, And yeah, After Party, I've played it on the Xbox. I think it's available on other consoles, Mm -hmm. maybe even PC. Uh, But long story short, um, you, I don't want to kind of, put any spoilers in there because it's such a good game and anyone listening should go and play it but um you are you you start off dead (laughs) (laughs) always always a good start (laughs) start off dead you're sent to hell and you are told why you're in hell and how long you're going to be in hell for 
Um, and the only way that you can, well, you work out the only way that you can get out of there is by obviously beating the devil at a drinking game. Well, out drinking, basically, not a drinking game. You've just got to basically out drink the devil. Um, and so that's kind of a very high level explanation of it but it's just really good like you're basically wandering around hell the whole time lots of funny bits in it there's lots of um like it's designed to be like you're you're in real time getting information via tweets or texts about what's going on in hell because obviously it's called after party so it's one big party and there's bars and all sorts going on here there and everywhere and it's quite nice because you always feel like you're missing out on something because you'll see a message or a tweet or something appear on the screen where it's hinting that there's something going on in a bar somewhere or this, that, and the other. And you think, oh God, I've got to get there quickly. But then when you're about to leave, something else happens in the area that you're in. I'm not explaining it very well, but <laughs> it's just <laughs> a big party in hell. It's really fun. It's really funny. It's a, it's a game of consequences as well, isn't it? So there are many choices you have to make throughout the game, which not only changes the outcome, but actually changes your entire character. And, yeah. you know, some of those choices get unlocked through having different drinks. Um, mm. And there's this whole thing about, you know, releasing sort of suppressed memories and traumas and being able to get that out by talking to people. But then also if you kind of go too far, it takes you into a place where your personality becomes unlikable and you can actually lose that friendship that you arrive into the game with. And sort of, I I think there are many objects, whether it's get back to life, defeat the devil. I think, you know, the more, let's say the more ethical route to go through this game is to try and overcome your traumas and maintain good relationships with people, no matter what that means for whether you beat the devil or not. But I know we took different approaches to that. Absolutely. Because I remember, I'd, and I didn't realise there were so many possible different outcomes. And when we spoke about the ending, I was like, what? That didn't happen. <laughs> I think you were very intent on just winning the drinking games. I realised yeah. at some point it was wiser to give up so that I could maintain a good friendship. <laughs> Says a lot. I was like, oh, whatever, I'm dead, so who cares? <laughs> Let's get shit-faced. <laughs> But yes, if you're a gamer and you want to challenge the devil to a drinking game, then go check out After Party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, shall I tell you why I'm drinking the drink I'm drinking? Yes, please. Mm-hmm. As a reminder, it's Duval. Um, Duval Mortgart Brewery uh, is a Flemish family brewery founded in 1871 around Antwerp in Belgium. And to commemorate the end of World War I, the Mortgats named their main beer Victory Ale. And in the 1920s, uh, an avid drinker of of this Victory Ale described the beer as Nen Echten Duvel, which means a real devil in Brabantian Dutch. A real devil. Probably in reference to the fact that it is really quite alcoholic. <laughs> it's um, 8.5%. Um, and as a result of which, calling it a real devil, they just officially changed its name to devil or duvel, as it is in Dutch. Um, this drink is considered by a lot of people to be the definitive version of the Belgian strong pale ale style. 
So Duvor is brewed with Pilsner malt and dextrose and hopped as well with sass hops and styrian goldings. And then the yeast um, originally comes from Scotland. Um, it was Albert Mortgat was doing a business tour of the UK just after World War One, and he brought back the uh, the yeast stems from that original Scottish culture. Unusually for an ale, it's usually served chilled, um, which I have done, in fact. And sometimes even the glass is chilled if you get it from Belgium. Duval is usually regarded as an aperitif there rather than like a session beer, as it were. <laughs> Obviously, because it's very strong. Um, the third generation of Mortgats were convinced that it's a unique beer that deserves a unique glass. And so in the late 1960s, the Duval glass became the first tulip-shaped beer glass. Um, it's reminiscent of a wine glass, if you like. Um, and, you know, the requirements were that it had to be able to hold the contents of an entire 33 centilitre bottle. Up until then, there hadn't been such large beer glasses around that region. They favoured the small ones. We'll disregard the whole history of pints because we did that <laughs> the other week. Um, but the glass is specifically designed to offer, you know, um, uh, a more complete experience to taste the beer. So the rounded shape allows the flavour and the aroma uh, to become apparent. And then the way the glass narrows towards the top helps to retain the um, the carbonation preserving the head. Because it has a mighty head, does Duval, as you have seen from my sipping. Um, there is also a variety of Duval called 666, uh, which I thought would be appropriate to mention today. Uh, mm -hmm. It is 6.66%. And it also has six hops. So okay. it's it's a slightly milder alcohol than the other version, but um, they've apparently been very precise in those sixes, which is impressive. So um, it, you probably do know, but just in case you don't, this is a religious thing of sorts. The, uh, the Textus Receptus uh, manuscripts of the New Testament, I always think go Latin if you can when you're talking about the devil because he listens for some reason. I uh, don't know why he prefers Latin over any other language. Uh, so in the uh, the book of Revelation, it, it cryptically asserts 666 to be man's number or the number of a man. But depending on how it's translated, it's sometimes more associated with the beast. But the number of the beast is also cited as 616 in some of the earlier biblical manuscripts. So who knows? But um, some people take the satanic associations of 666 so seriously that they actively avoid things related to 666 or the digits 6. Um, do you know what that's called? No. <laughs> I was trying to think of something witty, but I've got nothing. <laughs> I was just waiting for you to come out with um, hexacosio hexaconsohexophobia. Of course. It was on the tip of your tongue, yeah. wasn't it? Mm -hmm. um, however, in China, the number is considered to be lucky and is often displayed in shop windows and neon signs. So if you see 666 in a, in a window in China, do not fear. It means everything goes smoothly because the number six has the same pronunciation as the character that means smooth. So there you go. But what I think is even more impressive than the the stories the the mythology is the maths buckle up <laughs> are you ready for some maths i am i was about to say 
it's quite a sad thing to have but my as a kid my favorite times tables was um six sixes of 36 well then you you are absolutely gonna fucking love this (laughs) (laughs) oh i'm ready hold hold on to your tits um right so six six (laughs) six is the sum of all the numbers on a roulette wheel which means 666 is the sum of the first 36 natural numbers. And that means that it's a triangular number. But 36 is also triangular. So 666 is a double triangular number. Shit, son. We're not done. Also, (laughs) 666 is the sum of the squares of the first seven primes. Oh my god. Yeah. And... The Roman numeral for 666 is DCLXVI. So it has exactly one occurrence of all the symbols whose value is less than a thousand in decreasing order. Not the devil is smooth. Have I blown your mind? <laughs> yeah. Do you believe that I sat there and figured all that out by myself? Absolutely not. Okay, on to your fact then. <laughs> <laughs> Fun fact, my drink is dry. <laughs> oh, I thought you had one more. Oh wait, I haven't. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> Forgot about my monster. Jesus. Oh my god. Jesus Christ. You blew my mind too much. Okay. Uh on to my fact then. Um are you a fan of monster energy drinks? Absolutely not. Good, because you are safe. <laughs> You. <laughs> I do worry about my safety sometimes. Um, according to a delightful lady on YouTube, um, if you if you just type into YouTube, "monster energy drinks are the work of Satan," you'll find it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, it's a woman. She's believed to be speaking at a Christian event. Ofs. And she truly believes that there are hidden messages across the Monster Energy Drink brand, the logo, the marketing that resemble elements of Satanism. So she claims the M logo. So I don't know if you can picture it in your head. The mm-hmm. Monster cans have got the M that looks like they've been like clawed into the can. Uh, she claims that the M logo could appear to resemble three instances of the, le- the letter Vav, which is the Hebrew numeral for six, uh, interpreting the, le- the logo to mean 666. Wow. Uh, she also references the slogan, uh, Unleash the Beast. Don't need to explain that. Uh, she says, this is not a Christian company at all, so why would they have a cross on the can? Here's the message. Antichrist. So she thinks there is a cross in the letter O of the monster, and that resembles a crucifix. She says when the can is held upside down whilst you're drinking it, the symbol is inverted. Boom. Satanism. (laughs) And I quote, she says, Bottoms up and the devil laughs. This is how clever Satan is and how he gets into the Christian home and a Christian's life. So, uh, yeah, don't be drinking any monster, kids. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Did you I enjoy pl- my accent? <laughs> I enjoyed a lot of things about that. Um, <laughs> I enjoyed, what was it? Bo- boom Satan? or Yeah, <laughs> Boom Satan. <laughs> yeah, that. I'm going to say that more. I enjoyed your accent. I also <laughs> partly agree with her 
Um, only in the sense of why would you ever have an energy drink when you could just eat some cake? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I always used to be amazed at the number of people I'd see drinking energy drinks at breakfast time on the tube. It's just sugar. Just have something that tastes nicer and has sugar in it. Yeah. Or just have a pint. Just cheer up and have a pint. I'd have a pint for breakfast on the tube on the way to work. <laughs> I've seen you. <laughs> and so our drinks have run dry. <laughs> but our trivia has not. And yeah. neither have our bladders. So we're going to have a toilet break and see you soon for part two. Bye. I didn't want to bring bladders into this, but the devil made me do it. Wherever I may roam, or land or sea you can always hear me sing in this song. Show me the way to go home. Um, means spade, Franciscans, say the Franciscan monks. Uh, Augustina Brow is the... Oh. My uh, door just went. The devil I don't know why. I'm not expecting anyone. The devil is at my door. Let me find out what that is. 